Please take your Bibles once again, and let's return to the Gospel of Luke, Gospel of Luke chapter 9. We pick up with verse 28 this morning, Luke 9, verse 28 through 36. Some eight days after these sayings, he took along Peter and James and John and went up the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different, and his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah who appearing in glory were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep, but when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And as these were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not realizing what he was saying. While he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Then a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. What we're seeing in this passage is an unveiling. It's not a changed Jesus, but Jesus as he really is. When Peter and James and John catch this amazing glimpse of the kingdom of God and of the king himself, it's not a vision of what will be in the future. It is Jesus unveiled. It is Jesus in the glory which the Son had with the Father in eternity past, before the world began. This is Jesus with the veil of flesh pulled back. What they saw that day was the kingdom of God from another dimension. They now became witnesses of the glory of Christ in his human dimension through his teaching and through his miracles and the heavenly dimension. In the glory that has been his from all eternity. And now Luke, as well as Matthew and Mark, give us a glimpse of that glory as well. Now, John does not describe this event in his gospel, but the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, each include an account of what happened on that day, on that mountain, each providing a description with more or less detail, depending on which gospel you happen to be reading. We're going to touch on some of the differences within the accounts as we focus on Luke's de description this morning. Now you'll remember that at the end of the previous passage, we read this in verse 27. But I say to you truthfully, 
There are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. This is a good opportunity to remind ourselves that as we're reading the Bible, we need to keep in mind that the decisions which have been made in regard to the formatting of our English translations are not themselves inspired. That is, at some point, somebody thought it would be helpful to divide the books of the Bible into chapters and verses. They weren't written that way originally. The chapter divisions commonly used today were developed by Stephen Langton, who was an Archbishop of Canterbury around the year 1227. John Wycliffe used those chapter divisions uh, in his translation in 1332, and since the Wycliffe Bible, nearly all Bible translations have followed Langton's chapter divisions. The verse divisions with which we are familiar became standardized with the publication of the Geneva Bible, which was the precursor to the King James Bible. You'll also note that in addition to chapter and verse divisions, uh, your Bible may also contain paragraph divisions and subject headings And those paragraph divisions and subject headings are not the same in every version. They differ from version to version, particularly in the modern translations, whether it be the King James or the New King James or the NIV or the New American Standard or the ESV. These paragraph divisions and subject headings are not not inspired either. They are simply intended to be helpful to the reader as he seeks to understand what's going on in any particular portion of the scripture. So sometimes interesting questions arise out of these divisions as we now find them. You'll note, for instance, if you're using a New American Standard or the English Standard Version, that here in Luke chapter 9, the paragraph division is placed between verse 27 and 28. But if you're using the King James Version, for instance, the paragraph division is between verse 26 and 27. Likewise, in the Gospel of Mark, you find what seems to be a very strange editorial decision on the part of whoever determined the chapter and verse divisions, the chapter divisions being Langdon, as we said. Jesus' statement about some not tasting death until they see the coming of the kingdom of God, which is clearly a part of Jesus' previous discourse in regard to discipleship that we looked at last week. Well, that final statement of that discourse is broken off from the rest of the discourse that is found in chapter 8 of Mark. And that last line is then included as the first verse of chapter 9. And you wonder, why? In Matthew... You find that final statement 
where it seems to belong, right? The more logical structure. Jesus' statement about some not tasting death until they see the kingdom is placed as the last verse of chapter 16, while chapter 17 begins the account of the transfiguration. Now, remember what we just said a moment ago. None of these divisions are inspired. They are artificial. Neither Matthew nor Mark nor Luke wrote their Gospels with any divisions at all, not even between words, which makes it a little difficult when you're a New Testament scholar going back to the original manuscripts and trying to figure out where words end and the next word begins or sentences and so forth. But the question is still an interesting one. Why did those who at some point determined the chapter and the paragraph divisions and all the rest choose to make the divisions where they made them? And the answer seems to be that a choice was being made between chronology and theology. Matthew and Mark are formatted chronologically. That is in regard to the sequence of events. Matthew and Luke, I should say. The statement of Jesus that there are some who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom belongs with that previous discourse about discipleship. It's part of that discourse. And so Matthew and Luke put it there. It's clearly the concluding statement of that sermon that Jesus was preaching to his disciples. You know that because in the very next verse of Matthew's gospel, in chapter 17, verse 1, the chronology moves on almost a week. Matthew quotes the final words of Jesus' discourse, and then in the next sentence, he stops quoting Jesus and says, six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. So chronologically, that makes perfect sense. You have one account of Jesus teaching his disciples about discipleship, and then, because the next thing the gospel writer wants to tell you about happened six days later, there's your natural division. Here's this event, and then there's that event. This is a singular event. Jesus taught his disciples about discipleship. Let me tell you about that. And then he moves on to something else. Six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John up to a mountain. Now let me tell you about that. Two different things. But that's not what we find in Mark. Whoever made the chapter and paragraph and verse divisions in Mark didn't divide those passages chronologically, but rather theologically. Chronologically, Jesus' statement about some not dying until they saw the Son of Man coming in his kingdom should be the last verse of chapter 8. That's where it belongs, with all the rest of that sermon to Jesus' disciples. But the editor of Mark's gospel chose to split it off from chapter 8 and instead use that verse to begin chapter 9. Even though in Mark chapter 9, verse 2, we still find that chronological statement after six days. Why did he do that? Why is that verse the beginning of chapter 9 instead of the end of chapter 8 in the Gospel of Mark? It is because our dear Dr. Langdon, the Archbishop of Canterbury, understood 
what Jesus meant when he said, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it's come with power. He understood that Jesus was not referring to his second coming. He was referring to what would happen six days later on the mountain when only some of them, Peter, James, and John, would be there to witness the unveiling of the kingdom in the glory of Jesus. Now, there is no little controversy concerning this point, and frankly, I don't understand why. Some take that, if we go back to Luke chapter 9, some will take that statement in verse 27. There are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God, and some will say, well, that's not a reference to the transfiguration. It's a reference to the resurrection. Some will take it as referring to the second coming. Some will take it as referring to Pentecost. But given the language and the structure and the events themselves, it seems to me to be exceedingly obvious that the three gospel writers who include this account in their gospels each intend us to understand that the transfiguration, which happens immediately following that statement, is what Jesus was referring to. That's how they understood it. Certainly all of the other options that people want to put forth are connected with the kingdom. The transfiguration is not the totality of the revelation of the Son of Man and his kingdom, but it is the foretaste of the revelation of that kingdom which has already been established because the king has already come. Jesus has made that clear since the beginning of his earthly ministry. Now, this revelation was given only to this inner circle of the disciples, Peter, James, and John. These are those spoken of in verse 27. Some of those standing here will not taste death. That statement is fulfilled a week later when Jesus invited the three to go up on the mountain with him to get away and to pray. And there, Luke tells us that while he was praying, verse 29... The appearance of his face became different, and his clothing became white and gleaming. Does that remind you of anything? It sounds a lot like the apocalyptic descriptions of Jesus from Revelation. John wrote Revelation. John is here on the mountain. Jesus' glorified body is illuminated in his clothing so that his very clothing appeared to share that transformation. In addition to that, Matthew records that his face shone like the sun. Another similarity to what we see in John's descriptions in Revelation. Luke says that the appearance of his face became different, but Mark and Matthew use the word transfigured. 
which gives us the common title of this event, the Transfiguration. For a brief moment, the veil of his humanity was lifted and his true essence allowed to shine through. The glory of the king that was always in the depths of his being rose to the surface this one time in his earthly life. And these three were there to see it. These three were given both a glance back at his pre-incarnate glory and a glance into the future when that glory would be fully revealed once again forever. They saw the kingdom of God in the face of Jesus. Now, Peter, James, and John were meant to hold on to this during the difficult days that were about to come. It was to be their solace. It was to be a reason for hope in the darkness in which they would soon be enveloped. The crucifixion would eclipse their vision momentarily. Can you imagine? You're Peter, you're James, you're John. You see this incredible event unfolding before you. And not too long afterwards, you're there when Jesus gets arrested and you are so filled with fear that you run away. And if you're Peter, you deny him three times. After seeing this. Now, I say that not so that you will think of these three disciples and say, what a bunch of losers these guys are. I say that so you will be reminded about the weakness of our fallen humanity. Because they are no different than we. John would later write, We have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. So, in the moment of tension, they'll forget what they saw here, but eventually it would come back to them. Peter himself writes about this as well, as we will see. So this is what they see. Jesus is, is praying. The appearance of his face became different and his clothes became white and gleaming. Now they don't see this right away. We'll come back to that. But what is happening here on the mountain, in addition to the glory of Christ's radiance shining forth and being unveiled, is a conversation which is taking place. Behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who, appearing in glory, were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Can I just point out one thing there from verse 31 for a moment? Have you ever paid attention to how Luke phrases this? They were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish. His departure is clearly his death, burial, resurrection, eventual ascension. 
But Luke does not write about this as something that is going to happen to Jesus. He writes about it as something which Jesus accomplishes. And that is how we should always view the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension. Jesus is no victim. Jesus is the one who accomplishes these things because in them he is accomplishing the purpose for which he came, which is the redemption of his people. But, of course, the thing that gets everybody's attention when they're reading this is the fact that Moses and Elijah show up. Why them? Why not Isaiah and Jeremiah, Daniel and Joseph? Well, there are several reasons. Both of these men had previously conversed with God on a mountaintop, so this was nothing new to them. Moses on Mount Sinai and Elijah on Mount Horeb. Another name for Sinai, by the way. They had both been shown God's glory. Both had famous departures from this earth. Moses died on Mount Nebo, after which God buried him in a grave known only to God himself. Elijah was taken up alive in a chariot of fire. Both were expected to return again before the end of the age or at the end of the age. Moses was the great lawgiver. Elijah, the great prophet. Moses was the founder of Israel's religious system, and Elijah was the restorer of it. Together, they were a powerful summary of the entire Old Testament economy. Now, of course, what we really want to know is, what were they talking about? Well, verse 31 tells us somewhat. They were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. They were speaking about Jesus' impending death, his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of God. They were talking about the ultimate exodus. We can't really see this in the English, but... The Greek tense used here indicates that this was an extended conversation. It went on for some time. And it's one of those conversations I would have given anything to have heard. I'm incredibly jealous of Peter and James and John. I want a recording of this. Just like that conversation between Jesus and his disciples on the road to Emmaus. I just want to hear every word. Here are Moses and Elijah, the chief representatives of the law and the prophets. And they're carrying on a conversation with Jesus who himself said, Do not think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish but to fulfill. And here are Moses and Elijah talking with their Lord about the fulfillment of everything that their respective lives represented. Jesus was the fulfillment of everything toward which the law pointed. 
He fulfilled what the sacrificial system taught and promised. He fulfilled the Decalogue. He fulfilled every messianic prophecy, everything toward which all redemptive history had been moving. It is fulfilled in him. Everything Moses pointed toward, everything Elijah pointed toward, it's fulfilled in Christ. And there he is, shining forth in his glory as he speaks with Moses, who had been dead over 1,400 years. And Elijah, dead for 900 years. And they are talking about his coming exodus, his his imminent death for the sins of his people. And as this singular event in the history of the world is taking place, where are Peter and James and John? Sleeping. Well, for part of it anyway. Now, Peter and his companions, verse 32, had been overcome with sleep. But when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And as these were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not realizing what he was saying. And of course, this should sound very familiar because Peter was constantly talking about things he didn't understand and doing so at the most inopportune times. So the three disciples are overcome with fatigue. All right, we'll cut them a break there. It seems that nothing much was going on at the time they fell asleep. So it's not as if they saw Jesus in all of his glory conversing with Elijah and Moses and then decided to take a nap. That's not what was going on. All right? They are flesh and blood human beings. They need to sleep at some point. But then they wake up. And when they wiped the sleep from their eyes, verse 32 says, when they were fully awake, then they saw what was going on. They saw Jesus' glory and the two men standing with him. And whether it was because they figured it out in the course of the conversation or through some other means, they knew that this was, in fact, Moses and Elijah. Now, if there's ever a time for silence, this is it. If I'm there and just a little distance away is Jesus speaking with Moses and Elijah, my first response would be to tell myself, shut up, don't talk. That would not be appropriate. But Peter was there. And Peter was a man who could always find something to say when nothing could or should be said. And so he does. And he decides, I have an idea. Let's make three tabernacles. He opens his mouth and he makes this suggestion And Luke makes it very clear that Peter was clueless. He doesn't realize what he's saying. And he is answered. Not by Jesus, as happens so often elsewhere. 
Peter will say something that he shouldn't say, and, Peter has, and Jesus has to rebuke him. And Peter still never learns, but here Peter is answered, but it isn't Jesus who answers him. He's rebuked in an altogether new and exciting way. While he was saying this, he doesn't even get to finish what he wants to say. While he's still speaking, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Then a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Now, it had been 600 years since anyone in Israel had seen the Shekinah glory. But that's what Peter and James and John are seeing. The disciples are terrified as Jesus and Moses and Elijah are enveloped in what Matthew describes as a bright cloud. Peter and James and John see up close and personal the cloud that not even Moses was allowed to intimately view in the Old Testament during his earthly life. But now Jesus was with him. He was with them, and they could now gaze upon his Shekinah glory. Think of it. The pillar of the Exodus. That's what this is. This was the cloud that passed by Moses as God covered him in the cleft of the rock with his hand so that Moses only saw the afterglow. This was the cloud that covered the newly finished tent of meeting and so filled the new tabernacle with God's glory that Moses could not enter into it. It was the same cloud that filled Solomon's temple on the dedication day so that the priests could not enter into it. It was the same glory that Ezekiel saw rise from between the cherubim and move to the threshold of the temple because of Israel's apostasy and then slowly, hesitatingly move over the east gate of the temple where it hovered, finally rising to be seen no more over the Mount of Olives. Jesus is that glory. On the Mount of Transfiguration, his face was shining like the sun, his body dazzlingly white. This was the one who would pray on the night of his death. Now, Father, glorify me with yourself, with the glory I had with you before the world began. Everything signified by the pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud, is found in Jesus. He is the glory of God. He is our glory. He is our hope. And then the voice speaks in verse 35. The cloud has surrounded them, enveloped them, overshadowed them. And a voice now comes out of the cloud, which is in and of itself 
an amazing description of what was going on. When we think of a voice, you're sitting out there, you're hearing my voice, and there is a direction, there is a location of a voice. It's coming from somewhere. In our case this morning, from a couple of speakers. But you're hearing a voice, and we hear voices directionally. But look at how this is described. The the cloud overshadows them. It envelops them. And a voice comes out of the cloud which is enveloping them. The idea is the voice is everywhere. There's not one specific point that you could look to and say, I heard the voice coming from there. The voice is coming out of the cloud, and the cloud is everywhere around them. And the voice says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. This was the voice of the father who said almost the exact same thing at Jesus' baptism. Peter later wrote of this experience in his second epistle. Second Peter Chapter 1, beginning with verse 16, Peter writes this, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. I'll just point out that Peter says nothing about what he said. (laughs) I guess he doesn't want to call attention to his earlier foolishness. What he was, does want to call attention to is the fact that God spoke. And God from heaven, as he did at Jesus' baptism, declares Jesus to be his one and only son, his chosen one, his anointed one, his unique one. And Peter and James and John are to listen to him. That's the command that they receive from God. That's the command that we receive. Jesus is far greater in authority than Moses or Elijah. The law and the prophets are only partial expressions, but here is the final statement. Listen to my son. Isn't this what the author of Hebrews says? The very beginning of his epistle. In chapter 
1 and verse 1 of the epistle to the Hebrews, we read this. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son. Given who he is, Everything depends upon listening to Jesus. Listen to him when he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Listen to him when he says, as he did on the last day of the the feast, the great day, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Listen to him when he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Listen to him. Listen to Jesus, and you hear God. Luke concludes the account in verse 36 when he says, When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. I can understand that. Who would believe it? But Jesus was found, we're told, alone. And of course he was. Jesus was found alone not only because his incarnational ministry was not yet complete. Jesus was found alone because there's no one else like him. Jesus himself, Jesus alone is the focus of all creation, all redemptive history. He is the focus of the Old Testament. He is the focus of all human history. He is the focus of all eternity. Jesus alone is everything. Some months later, toward the very end of Jesus' life, as the cross looms larger, he was in Jerusalem for the Feast of the Tabernacle. It was the end of the festival. And the previous night, an unforgettable ceremony, the illumination of the temple had taken place before four massive candelabra topped with huge torches. The candelabra were as tall as the highest walls of the temple. And at the top of these candelabra were mounted great bowls that held 65 liters of oil. There was a ladder for each of the candelabra. And when evening came, strong young priests would climb up those ladders and light the wicks. And eyewitnesses said that the huge flames that leapt from these torches illuminated not only the temple, but most of Jerusalem, the entire city. The Mishnah tells us, men of piety and good works used to dance before the candelabra, 
with burning torches in their hands, singing songs and praises, and countless Levites played on harps, lyres, cymbals, and trumpets, and instruments of music. That exotic rite which is described celebrated the great pillar of fire that led the Israelites during their sojourn in the wilderness, which spread its cloud over the temple, later engulfed the temple, the temple treasury, the following morning, with the charred torches still in place, finds Jesus there, lifting his voice above the crowd and proclaiming, I, not these candles, not these torches, I am the light of the world. Not just the light of the temple, not the light of Jerusalem, the light of the world. There could scarcely be a more emphatic way to announce the supreme truths of one existence. Christ was saying, in effect, the pillar of fire that came between you and the Egyptians, the cloud that guided you by day in the wilderness and illumined the night, and then the cloud that enveloped the tabernacle, that glorious cloud that filled Solomon's temple, that was me. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is the Shekinah glory. He is the light of life. If we do not have him, we are in darkness. He is the savior of the world. If we are without him, we are lost. He is our only hope. He is the only source of glory. Scripture talks about the fact that one day, we who are in Christ will ourselves be glorified. But our glory... Our glory is not an inherent glory. We need a glory that belongs to someone else. And if we are in Christ, we will receive that glory. But it's not a glory that is within us. It is a glory that comes to us from outside. It is the glory of Christ given to us. Just as the righteousness with which we stand before God, is not our own righteousness. It is righteousness which belongs to another. It is Jesus' righteousness. It is given to us so that God may look upon us and see Christ's righteousness and thereby declare us to be righteous, just. And one day, if we are in union with this glorified one, these bodies which have by then died and turned to dust will be raised and we will share in the glory of this glorious one. That's the promise. But it is only in him. It comes no other way. You must know Christ 
as your glorious one. You must bow your heart as well as your knee before him. You must confess your sin and turn from it and love Jesus. And then every promise that he makes is yours because everything he says is true. So, obey the Father's voice. Listen to him. Repent and believe. Father, thank you. Overwhelm us, Father, with the glory of the Savior. Until that day when we, like Peter and James and John, see his glory with our own eyes. We long for that day, Father, those of us who are yours. May it come quickly. In the name of the glorious one, we ask this. Amen.